All right, so I'm pushing back, pushing back on all, all comments here. Um, yes, you know, having localized fee markets on an L2 is cool, but in my opinion, it's somewhat worthless because you can have application-specific rollups. You're not really fighting congestion on your rollup anyways. If you launch something really cool on Arbitrum, go spin it up into an L3. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Before we dive into today's episode, we want to give a quick word from our sponsor, Hexens, the most hardcore security team in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by tier one protocols like Polygon, including their work on their ZK AVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, Nubank, and more. Uh, I hope some of you guys got to go stop by their booth at Permissionless. Really fun team. Uh, and got to learn more about what they do. We will mention uh, Hexens and what they're all about a little bit more later in the episode. Um, today is September 18th, and uh, we're changing it up a little bit today, actually, and doing an analyst-only episode recap of Permissionless 2. It was a lot of fun getting to meet a lot of you guys down there. It was uh, honestly kind of surreal having people come up to us and say, no, oh, I know you guys from Zero X Research, so uh, thanks for doing that for sure. Um, and actually, we're going to be changing up the format of the podcast a little bit and doing analyst episodes separate from the actual interview. So be sure to let us know what you think of that format in the comments. Um, but anyways, Ren, maybe I can kick it over to you uh, to kick us off on the permissionless recap. Yeah, sure. So for me, it was my first time in Austin, Texas. Definitely not used to the heat. Um, but overall, I think permissionless was a great conference. You know, it's not the easiest environment to host a conference in. We're in the U.S., which doesn't have the most favorable regulatory environment. We're deep, deep in the middle of a bear market. And, you know, there's conferences all around the world, such as like ECC, Korea Blockchain Week, Token 2049, that uh, crypto participants have to choose between. But all in all, I think Permission Institute was fantastic. You know, you had a good mix of sort of very in the weeds researchers, protocol deaths, institutional, we had a few um, senators or Congress people. I don't know the difference since I'm not American. Um, and it was just a very high quality and high signal conference uh, compared to whatever you experience in the boom market, right? In the boom market, it feels like you go to a side event, the room is packed with probably realistically 500 people. It feels like you're just trying to like shoot it off and say hi to everyone every five seconds and say, hey, I work at blah, blah, blah. Uh, what do you do? And like, if you want to move on, you got to move on because there's so many people to talk to. But I felt like the conversations I had during Permissionless were a lot more slower pace and in a better sense, right? I really got to understand people, really got to understand why they're here, what they're working on, what they're interested in. And obviously, like everyone that's still here at this stage of the market is deeply, deeply passionate about crypto. And that was the overall vibe I was getting. Everyone here is very passionate. They're very interested in whatever do they're doing, even if that's running a fund, building a protocol, building a product or a service. Everyone is here for a reason and they know why they're here, right? Um, and tying this to one of the opening speeches that they had at Permissionless by Eric Voorhees, right? I think he made it very clear why he's in this industry. There was a quote, uh, there was a quote from his speech where he said, to such people, we owe nothing, but to humanity, we owe much. That is why we're here and crypto is our rebellion. And I think on one hand, I definitely agree with that, right? I feel like a lot of people are sick with the status quo, whether you're living in a first world country such as America or any emerging economy such as, for example, Venezuela. A lot of people are sick of the status quo, the systems, the industries, the regulation that's been put in place. And I think people are fed up, you know, definitely people 
have gotten more fed up, probably due to just backbreaking inflation over the past year. Like eggs and milk are a lot more expensive than what they used to be, and that definitely makes me mad. Um, but Eric Voorhees made the point that we basically live like farm animals. You know, perhaps I wouldn't go so far to say that we all live like in a complete gutter. Uh, we live like farm animals. We're completely on, at the whim of like regulators of and politicians. At least not within like the U.S. or other slightly more developed countries. But I think that that. Uh, opening keynote he gave got me sufficiently energized again as to why I'm in crypto. You know, definitely for like the past few months, I've been like, oh my god, please just stop talking about like shared sequencers, rollups, like restaking. I don't really care anymore. You know, <laughs> but that Eric Voorhees speech really made me come back. There's definitely been like people on the other end of the spectrum that when you know, I don't think crypto should be a complete rejection of democracy. You know, code isn't better than law you know there should still be systems in place and i i completely agree with that right? i think a lot of people in crypto sort of have these extreme views and we always like to like put ourselves on the extreme ends of the spectrum you know is that a full centralization or full decentralization i don't want any of this cd5 uh stuff but i think there's always a middle ground for everything to be honest and i think for crypto is the fact of the matter that that middle ground between whatever institutions or environment or society structure we have today and crypto, that middle ground is still better than whatever the status quo is. Um, and yeah, that's a brief takeaway of permissionless. We're so back. Uh, I love to hear that the keynote got you fired up. You know, that's, I hope that was part of the intent. And if not, that's certainly one of the goals that achieved without a doubt. Eric Voorhees is the man. Uh, I, I got into crypto, really got into the weeds of crypto through ThorChain. And he was, uh, he, the Shapeshift has worked very closely with ThorChain over the past. So it was cool to kind of like see that, that arc in, in me knowing him to, as some dude who is involved in ThorChain uh, to now be giving a keynote at Permissionless. And of course, he's far more important than all of that. But uh, it was just cool. Yeah, I, I really, I liked the sentiment he was driving home of just like kind of trying to reinvigorate, repassion or drive passion into people about why space is important. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I agree largely with a lot of your takeaways too. Like the average conversation I had, I walked away being like, damn, like that was, that was a great conversation. And it was like a lot less people asking about I'm not trying to throw any shade here, but there's way fewer, uh, what do you think about Cardano's or what do you think about Stellar's and a lot more like, all right, do you actually think a single shard blockchain is, is the future compared to maybe like, uh, you know, Ethereum's approach or the Cosmos approach? Like it was like super in the weeds questions about like things we don't have answers to. And we're like actively trying to figure out and not just uh, asking questions about the protocols that have the best marketing campaign. So that was kind of like my, my TLDR. Yeah, I got to say, I also had a lot of conversations about like, what's the best way to scale a blockchain? You know, I talked to people who were, I think majority of the people I talked to are probably layer two maxis. Everyone's excited for what they think is this incoming layer two narrative. But I talked to many people who are like, you know, what do you think about a monolithic chain with a localized fee market like Solana? And, you know, plenty that we're talking about app specific chains and such as Cosmos or, you know, plenty of other solutions as well. And it's really cool having those conversations because, you know, even within our own team, we have lots of different opinions on what's the correct solution. And at the end of the day, they're, they're all potentially viable ways to scale blockchains. And uh, it's really cool seeing the space be in this like, you know, such niche niche times where everyone's kind of uh, very interesting and looking at the the things that I think are, you know, the most important to how we how we proceed and grow the space so that we can support billions of users in the future. 
Yeah, I, I think that really leans into the fact that that was kind of one of, an overarching theme of just talking to people in the conference was uh, maybe the Ethereum-centric uh, worldview, if you will, is just not as dominant anymore. And you know, I feel like a lot of people came into crypto, got comfortable with Ethereum, and that's how they learned about like uh, account-based blockchains or smart contracts as a whole. So it's kind of like your starting off point. Uh, and then we do tend to tribalize how we think about blockchains and so you kind of become like an eth maxi and then it takes like a hurdle point to be like okay well you know maybe this cosmos ecosystem is cool maybe this solana ecosystem is cool um and now it's you know kind of ossifying into more of like ideological approaches you know we talk a lot about on, on this podcast about how ethereum's end goal is really not too dissimilar from the cosmos ecosystem's end goal it's just a very different way of getting there and you know we're kind of starting to see that it's like I mean, I, I, even Westy, who's been a long time, just like ETH is the best solution. ETH is the best solution. Yes, there's other viable ways, but ETH, ETH is still the best solution. He even cracked and he was like, damn, like, I think there's like three really good ways of scaling a blockchain and like hitting critical mass. And, you know, I think they'll all probably work over the long term. But the question is, you know, how do you differentiate at that point? Or um, does being first really matter here? Because I tend to think, yes, like the first ecosystem to really bring on that uh, that game-changing application or that game-changing amount of users in any capacity will probably at least think they won, but it'll be tough to say if they actually won. Man, I got to say one of the craziest conversations for me was late in the night, me and you were chatting about Bitcoin. And, you know, I've always been a big fan of Bitcoin. It's what got me into this space. And yeah, I think you've probably never been a fan of Bitcoin. And I, I walked away from the conversation being a little more bearish Bitcoin. And I remember the next day you were like, I actually, you know, see some of your points about why maybe Bitcoin could be successful in the future. So it's it's pretty crazy that, you know, there's so many topical things to chat about. And I got to say that one, that one hit pretty hard. OK, OK, hold on. I got I got to set the record straight here. I am, I was a first a fan of Bitcoin. But yes, like I just see the fee, the fee model as, as an, like a, an unsolved issue. Um, that an increasing number of people are like, OK, like this is an issue we have to solve. Of course, there's like always the hardcore camp in any protocol or really any ideology period uh, that's like no we have to never change like that's our core ethos um but yeah I, I just think the fee model is broken and something needs to be done about it and that's not to say something won't be done about it but i think one of the points you mentioned was like yeah well ethereum hasn't solved scalability and i just like maybe take a step back and i was like shit yeah like we have a unsolved problem too and in, in, over in smart contract land um and so that was like okay you know we're we're still actively solving things but i will say like there just doesn't seem to be an, a light at the end of the tunnel for the Bitcoin fee model problem. Like, I think this is the last bullish happening. I really do. And then it's, it starts to become all eyes on how do we fix this problem, which is probably a good thing because we do need that problem solved. It's interesting that there's this drive chain narrative forming. It's like super nascent and early stage, but you know, it seems to actually be gaining a lot of support from the you know, Bitcoin maxis, but I, I think more than Bitcoin maxis, I'd say from core contributors, like the ones who have the most influence on the protocol. Obviously, at the end of the day, um, no single entity has a ton of influence. But, you know, if you get the Bitcoin core team and a, a lot of the loud voices in the ecosystem support something, at least it at least has a chance at maybe being a future. And it seems that this drive chain idea is something that's uh, maybe gaining a little bit of traction. I'm honestly not an expert on it, but it seems like a potential solution where you could have all these layer twos, like maybe one of them's even an EVM or a smart contract platform, and uh, they drive a little bit of value back to the Bitcoin fee network in the same way that, I guess, side chains and layer twos do. 
And I, th I think it's interesting. Um, also, like maybe in the future, people look at Bitcoin as money instead of digital gold like they do today. And that could drive some value to it. But you made a lot of good points as to, you know, like, why would you ever bet on Bitcoin? Like people are going to use stable coins for that narrative. And uh, I definitely walked out of that conversation feeling a little more bearish than I did before. Not that I'm bearish Bitcoin. Yeah, it's just like pumping out $25 million of, of security incentives every single day to miners and not to token holders. So it's it's true to like, it's more than just dilution. It's a cost to the network. It's a tough one. It's a tough hill to climb. And if even if you look at uh, ordinals, which still have a large number of transaction volume, but uh, just the fees aren't, aren't there anymore. There's much less demand to get them included in the next block. Um, the peak of the ordinals hype uh, generated seven uh, in a single day, generated about 17 or so million dollars of transaction fees. And so like, Okay, even in the peak of this, uh, you know, definitely this speculative bubble, yeah, $17.79 million of transaction fees. And that specific day, um, May 8th, there was about $24 million of Bitcoin issuance. So it's still just like an enormous amount of money that is being pumped out of Bitcoin. I want to give a quick shout out to Hexens. As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize them as a premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including a security review on their new Polygon ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New Bank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis and cybersecurity security consulting. Hexens not only uses widely known methodologies and flows, but discovers and introduces new ones on a day-to-day -day basis. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to web two pen tests. Yeah, there's been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history. So it's safe to say your team has a lot on the line. Don't skimp out, take your security seriously and reach out to Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership and reach out to Hexens at hexens.io. Find them in the links in the show notes or reach out to them at Permissionless. They'll be at booth 832. Uh, but without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. Roping this back into the conference, though, I mean, it was in Texas, and I think it was, I, I can't, I think it was Riot. I'm not sure. I could be wrong there, but they made like $32 million in a month just selling electricity back to the grid. And while we were there, they were like, hey, be careful of power outages. Apparently, there was like a, a water boil advisory, et cetera. So, I mean, there is one bull case for, for Bitcoin tying it into the real world that might be a stretch, but. Nonetheless, I think the bigger topic here and takeaway from Permissionless is that no one was actually talking about Bitcoin. Like this is just our own conversations, our own curiosity, but I didn't see a single side conversation happening trying to solve the Bitcoin fee problem. And I mean, I think that speaks volume on its own. Good save, Matt. Matt and I were about to turn this entire podcast into Bitcoin versus smart contracts. <laughs> It's crazy because you're right. There wasn't a single conversation at the conference about Bitcoin. This was like, you know, five beers deep at midnight between Dan and I just arguing out like year old, you know, year old arguments at the conference. You know, I saw a lot of conversations about Ethereum, about Cosmos, about Solana. And the one other thing that kept coming up is like, you know, there's a lot of institutional and there's a lot of institutions there. People from, you know, things like KPMG, EY, some of the banks, things of that nature. So A, like one takeaway was the institutions are here. Like, you know, institutions are coming. They're here. Uh, maybe their teams are only five or 10 or up to at most 50 people. So, you know, they have a lot of room to grow, but they are here. They're interested. And they weren't even more than when I was having these conversations with people like this, 
some of them were interested in you know what they call public blockchains which is something that i have an issue with because these are just blockchains like there's no you shouldn't call the public blockchains they're just blockchains anyways they're also interested in like this idea of private infrastructure um you know creating new technology that particularly supports their stack and their business rather than using you know ethereum and things like that so i thought that was something interesting and you know i, I had a lot of pushback against it but it did keep coming up so i thought it's worth mentioning yeah shout out Citigroup. actually today we saw that news of them doing a pilot program with a, a private blockchain basically for 24 7 uh cross-border payments and financial primitives that anyone in their network can actually access but i think this kind of ties back to the Voorhees speech that we started with to be completely honest because like, why would you not want companies innovating this way? Like, I get you hate the notion of a private blockchain, but like, I don't think anyone really knows the true use case for blockchains today. And like, yes, you can argue, like, I mean, we're arguing over whether Bitcoin's going to be around, you know, in 20 years, considering the fee problem becomes such a big problem here pretty soon. So I think I'd rather have entities tackling this problem from every angle, even if it is in a walled garden environment just so we can actually figure out like where we fit in in the world and what the end state is like i think there's so many applications for this stuff and i'd rather have everyone working on it than just saying nah we want to completely leave out any type of notion of the ethos that doesn't fall with like the original ideals of crypto this was something that i asked during a panel i moderated so the panel that i moderated was the evolution of centralized exchanges and I asked all of my panelists, uh, one from Gemini, one from Kraken, one from Coinbase, and one from OKX, what are institutions, right? Because I feel like us in crypto, we always like to say, oh, the institutions are coming. The institutions are coming. Whenever a spot BTC or ETF gets approved, the institutions will come. But I, I don't think a lot of us have a single clue what institution really means. And to be honest, that was the same answer that I got at the panel, right? Institutions are so wide ranging. It can, it, it can include central banks. It can include sort of trad fire institutions such as like investment banks or just traditional banks. It can include fortune 500 companies. And I think one interesting statistic that Greg from Coinbase pointed out was that they had like quite a lot of institutional demand from fortune 500 companies so not financial companies just like standard big old like american companies and they had a lot of interest from them um in integrating like either custody or like being interested in crypto as a whole or blockchain right and you see that more and more over the past year right for example like shopify or sorry, Visa integrating with like USDC on Solana and using Solana as a settlement layer. And also, for example, like Circle's wallet as a service, uh, partnering with Grab. Um, for those that don't know, Grab is one of the largest super apps in Southeast Asia. You know, it's like Uber, Uber Eats, payments, and like 10 different other things all in one app. It's basically like the WeChat, but for Southeast Asia without the messaging functionalities. And that partnership was very bullish right um there were like vouchers that you would be able to use from day one you got nfts it wasn't one another one of those like just partnerships that just had no purpose to it um other than for a brand name's sake for example like microsoft and an ai like utility not gonna name names here but it, it feels like we're definitely seeing a lot more institutional adoption right especially in the DeFi space too for example layer zero made a big announcement that they were going to integrate Google Cloud um, as the default Oracle. 
So when when I first heard the news that Google would be doing something with Layer Zero, I wasn't I wasn't very sure what it would be. My gut feeling was that it would be Google running the relayer, since that's kind of like the less demanding, perhaps from like a blockchain or like crypto economic security role perspective of uh, between the Oracle and the relayer. But then Google Cloud is now the default Oracle for layer zero and they replaced chaining um to me that was like really 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 big news that wasn't talked about enough first of all because it's now the default oracle chaining got pushed out for google cloud to come in and i feel like that should take a lot of people in crypto by shock actually um chaining you know it's like a decentralized oracle network whereas Google Cloud is very, very far from decentralized. It's just like a bunch of data servers, probably 100% controlled by Google. And Layer Zero worked with Google in order to set up like all of the infrastructure they need in order to act as an Oracle. And truth be told, it was cool when I first heard it, but I'm not sure how I feel about it after thinking a bit about it. I asked the Layer Zero guys, what's like the security model behind Google Cloud running the default Oracle? And their answer was, Google is a $1 trillion big tech company. They're not going to rug you. But then internally, I'm thinking if Google Cloud rugs Layer 0, no asset manager even knows what Layer 0 is. None of them are going to go out there and go, oh, I'm going to sell my Google holdings on my portfolio. That's just not going to happen. But also on one hand, it just seems like Google Cloud running the default Oracle is like, social consensus on steroids you know like big tech social consensus and at that point like i'm not really sure what the point of like using an institution for the blockchain is there's like a whole there's like a whole other argument here of like how like crypto's been trending towards like just moving stuff off chain um not bothering to do anything on chain and sort of like just giving up on decentralization but that's that's an entirely argument so as far as like institutions as a whole sorry for going slightly off topic I definitely agree institutions are coming. There's a lot more that happens behind the scenes than we know, right? There's these uh, consulting companies, there's these auditing companies, there's these finance companies who all do things behind the scenes. We just never hear about it, right? These guys are the guys that are spending like three hours of the day on Twitter posting about what they do. They just do stuff in the background, helping companies sort of form blockchain frameworks, helping incorporate NDs, um, helping incorporate crypto into the sort of like the daily operational or logistical needs um it just happens very 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 behind the scenes but i think we all got a taste of that during permissionless which is very good yeah a couple things on that ren so um backing up to the usdc part yes there was a usdc and shopify integration there was also the beam and visa integration leveraging usdc there was also the visa and solana integration leveraging usdc there's also the circle and coinbase deal uh bringing kind of like pushing out USDC to the Cosmos ecosystem through Noble and more to, to more ETH L2s, including base, uh, Coinbase's L2. And quite honestly, most importantly, was the SAP integration. integration. Uh, I know you mentioned Citibank as well earlier, and that was super interesting because they're kind of doing the same thing, right? Allowing their existing clients to and they use cross-chain um, payments through USDC. Like that is that is what institutional adoption looks like, full stop. If people can use their existing service providers and send meaningful value transactions using USDC 
and it's not going to be me and you most likely. Well, I think that's part of adoption, but what institutional adoption looks like uh, is these Fortune 500 companies using this technology. So that's why I think it is insanely exciting to see banks like Citi and uh, you know payment processors like Visa and big companies like uh, SAP that are already integrated into a majority of these Fortune 500 companies really pushing this tech forward. On the layer zero stuff, can you run us through what like the you know super high level because obviously this could be an entire podcast, but like the relayer versus the Oracle, they use this two this two uh, this bifurcated security model. Can you just like run us through that real quick? And I guess my ultimate question is here: like, does that mean that Google Cloud is running a full node for every layer zero supported chain? Yeah, so layer zero is a cross-chain security marketplace, right? There's a bunch of different security providers, for example, Chainlink and now Google Cloud. And basically how it works is that there's two entities that facilitate this cross-chain general message passing or whatever you want to call it. The first is the Oracle and the second is the Relayer. The Oracle is in charge of retrieving block headers. More often than not, you have to run a full node. And the relayer, the relayer is in charge of sort of fetching a transaction identifier proof and then providing that to the endpoint. Um, basically, the Oracle feeds the block header to the endpoint. The off-chain, sorry, the relayer feeds a transaction identifier, a transaction identifier proof, and the message. And sort of when these two things get sent to the endpoint and they match each other, then the message is unlocked and whatever transaction that needs to be executed gets executed. And so I actually asked um, whether, like, how, how did Google set this up, right? Um, and the answer I got was that Layer Zero was very, very involved in helping Google set up like everything they need in order to run an Oracle. I also asked um, someone, I can't remember who, so is Google running like a full node for every Layer Zero supported chain, which I think as of today stands at around like 33 or 34. And I think the answer I got was no, which left me a little bit confused because to my understanding, you need to run a full node in order to pull a block header from a blockchain. And so I'm not really sure what's happening behind the scenes. And I think that's another thing that left me a bit concerned, right? Um, layer zero runs one of the default relayers for layer zero. And now Google cloud are running an Oracle service that was sort of built by Layer Zero, or Layer Zero definitely had like a very, very involved role in helping Google Cloud be able to achieve like whatever they need to do as an Oracle. And so the whole security model of Layer Zero is that these two roles, the Relayer and Oracle, are completely distinct from each other, right? Only if both of these collude with each other, then like you can do something malicious with Layer Zero. But now it seems pretty tightly integrated, especially with the fact that this partnership has been one year or so in the making. Um, but yeah, that's like a brief announcement of the Layer Zero security model. They gave out great swag, so I'm probably not going to complain that much. But it just feels iffy, you know? Like I, I feel like we've been moving a lot of stuff off-chain, uh, whether that's like execution or like order matching or whatever, especially in the realm of DeFi. And this kind of feels like something similar. You know, it, it kind of feels like we're just giving up on decentralization a little bit. Um, but it is also very cool that Google Cloud was willing to do a like a 
quite frankly like a huge partnership with a crossing bridge like there is zero you know it's, it's quite rare that you get such a significant partnership from a big tech company in crypto and it definitely puts us on the radar i think i would trust google as a company over like the three or five multi-sig that controls chain link you know maybe that's a hot take but at the end of the day i don't i don't think google's probably hey, four of nine four of nine four of nine sorry that might be worse actually <laughs> no it's better um and also it's crazy how into crypto google has gotten their gcp has become uh, google's become a, a competitor to alchemy and you know providing like archival node data to those that need it for ethereum so i think they're pretty sophisticated at this point i'm sure you know at the end of the day they're still getting into it i'm sure layer zero helped them set it up but i wouldn't worry too much about you know google being controlled by layer zero in in their oracle endeavors um i think they're you know i think they're for lack of better i think they're full steam ahead into uh crypto and really trying to you know be in the space and it's really, really cool to see. And, you know, I guess that is an example of an institution in crypto. At the end of the day, I think these types of partnerships are way cooler than the institutions that everyone else wants to come into crypto, which would be, you know, the endowments and the people that are, quote unquote, coming to buy our bags. I would actually rather see this. I'd rather see like infrastructure that would help, you know, this space become more efficient and better. And I think that's, you know, what's happening. Uh, but yeah, that's just my take. I think it's worth mentioning too that uh, it's just the default Oracle provider. So you can still configure the Oracle of your choice if you'd like. You could do three if you want and then take a median. So that way, if either one of them goes down, like I think really the big take home like thing to get out of this is just like Google Cloud is partnering with a Web3 company and they're putting the reputation on the line in the process of it. So I agree with Matt. I think that's pretty huge. Yeah, I like this breakdown of like, what is an institution, right? It's like, you almost have like financial institutions. And then I don't know if the right word here is like consumer institutions, but <laughs> might honestly just be non-financial institutions. But um, the financial institutions are definitely coming as well. I think the ETFs make this super, super easy. Uh, I had a panel with uh, John Wu from Ava Labs, Stan Lowe from QCP Capital, and Matt Hogan from Bitwise. And, and that's obviously something we talked greatly about was, what does the ETF coming actually mean? Uh, and what it really means is lower barriers to entry for family offices, RAs, capital allocators to get into this space, right? For those people, it's pretty hard to get a Coinbase account or a Coinbase custody account or a Coinbase Pro, whatever it may be that they need. It's not just you know, downloading the app and, and opening it. It's getting it past compliance. It's getting comfortable with, you're getting your clients comfortable with you using this new software service uh, to hold their value in. It's it's a much, much more than, you know, the download from the app store and submitting your KYC. It's, it's, it's a process and internal compliance is a total bitch to hurdle. So what these ETFs do is put a, the ability to allocate into the space directly on uh, the Bloomberg terminal or whatever uh, allocation software that they're already using, right? So the inflows are expected to be great because the demand is increasingly great. Um, and, and anyone who's listened to a lot of ZeroX research knows we're a big fan of Bitwise and, and Matt Hogan and, and Ryan Rasmussen as well. And they've come on the show a few times. And every time we ask them, where is the institutional mindset, financial institutional mindset with, with crypto? Because it feels like, you know, a year, even just a year and a half ago, it was like, all right, 1% of the portfolio, and we'll put it in Bitcoin. Then maybe like six months ago, it was like, okay, this Ethereum thing, it sounds pretty interesting. Still 1% of the portfolio, but we'll cut a like, we're going to cut a sliver off of that and put it into ETH. And then now it's like, all right, well, internally within the industry, we're always talking about how, you know, ETH is staking, staked ETH is this like, 
cash flow generating asset is super attractive, especially with Ethereum. It's not just, you know, earning new ETH on your ETH deposits and kind of that inflationary reward mechanism. You're actually getting this real yield concept through MEV, uh, through MevBoost and priority fees through transaction volume. So you're like actually earning yield on your, on your asset. And that's like this super attractive thing. We always talk about it. And every time I ask Matt Hogan, I'm like, where are we on the staked ETH? Are they interested yet? And they go, look, it's still 1% of the portfolio. If you're using, if that's your allocation approach, you either want to make it double it and make it 2% or be okay with it going to 0%. Earning another 3 to 5% on that allocation is just totally uninteresting, uh, which I always think is a really interesting thing. So we're not quite there. That's kind of where we are in the risk curve. Um, so while all of us go out and buy these DeFi tokens, that's where the financial institutions are sitting. And I always think that's a good sentiment check. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Another interesting, I guess, conversation throughout the conference that just came up constantly with shared sequencing, especially given the uh, Espresso partnership with with Arbitrum. And I actually had the uh, the privilege of speaking with Stephen Goldfeder, the, uh, the founder of Arbitrum, and he was just talking about how wrong people have this this debate in general, he's like, everyone thinks it's about decentralization, but really like it comes down to MEV as well. It's like, do you want to create back batch auctions and basically internalize this MEV? Or are you trying to just do FIFO and mitigate the MEV altogether to improve the user experience? And he was saying like, yes, decentralization is part of this, but then when you decentralize the sequencer, you likely create more centralized parts uh, in the system. So, you know, it's not like, all right, decentralize the sequencer, we can we can stop here. We're all good now. We won. Um, so there was just a lot of interesting takes uh, on the sequencing space. But I do think the espresso partnerships that we've seen over the past you know, couple months are, are pretty huge because I feel like a shared sequencer network doesn't actually work unless all the L2s opt in to create kind of those network effects and, and value accrual just for the entire ecosystem. So now it's starting to become not you know, are you doing an espresso testnet deployment? It's more like, oh, you're not doing an espresso testnet deployment. So I found that super interesting as well. One of the most interesting conversations I had was with Stephen and Pat. Pat works at the Arbitrum Foundation and Stephen uh, of the Offchain Labs about what is MEV. So like at the end of the day, like, okay, we can all probably agree that sandwich attacks are uh, have victims, right? So like maybe malicious or bad for the network or for the user experience, maybe more so than the network because that would be debatable. But what about backgrounding? What about, you know, just taking a, a swap and after it goes through, arbitraging it versus another versus another domain versus Binance or a different exchange or whatever. It's like, well, those are very different things. Like backgrounding is probably not bad for the user. Um, whereas, of course, like a sandwich attack that makes the user's price execution price worse is probably bad for the user. And then we have like all these new types of things people call MEV too. Like if you look at friend tech, there's all these smart contract bots out there. They're sniping newly created accounts. So not paying for ordering, which is what traditional MEV does, but you know, we're still calling it MEV. I think it's like we need better definitions of MEV before we can build solutions for sequencers that uh, address what DAOs actually want. Because, you know, one of one of the one of the panels I hosted was on like the problems in DAOs today. And it's like a lot of the, you know, delegates, token holders, the people who are making decisions about, for instance, Arbitrum, like what should the sequencer look like in the future? They don't actually know. They just know the word MEV and they don't actually know the the nitty gritty granular differences between these different types of MEV and how a sequencer could, how you could design a sequencer that only allowed for some types of MEV, but maybe not others. Um, so like really we need better education around this subject and uh, it needs to get into the hands of token holders and delegates yesterday, in my opinion. 
I want to agree with you, but also I think crypto researchers have collectively spent probably 1 million man hours just endlessly debating definitions on Twitter. Uh, but no, I think before you tackle a problem, you always need to define what it is. And like math, especially from like a rollout perspective, is probably something that we need to figure out. And not a lot of people have a good idea on. I think another thing that I think about when it comes to stretch sequences is value accrual, right? Today, the value accrual for base, arbitrum, optimism are all very clear. Like the sequencer collects like fees on the L2 and then it pays the L1 uh, data costs and you take the difference between those two and it's just pure profit to a sequencer, right? With a shared sequencer, that looks very, very different because to my knowledge, I don't think you can send a transaction both to like a shared sequencer and sort of like the native sequencer of that rollup. And so if all transaction order flow goes to a shared sequencer, right? And if Espresso's plan is to use like restake thief of eigenlayer as sort of like the token that secures or validates the shared sequencer, then what happens to the value accrual of optimism, arbitrum, the tokens itself? I don't think I've had a lot of like, I haven't heard a lot of like very clear thoughts from people, and I think that has the potential to change, like a lot of things, both from an investment perspective, but also from like a, I don't know, like ecosystem alignment or like security perspective. This is a super interesting question, and I don't have a good answer to what happens when you plug into a shared sequencer network. But I think this question is going to become incre increasingly prominent uh, for L twos as they continue to battle for users because. They could see a world where the spread that L2s capture on the amount, like basically the profit, right? So revenue being the amount of transaction fees paid by users on the L2, cost being the amount to post the data back to the L1, the profit being the difference. Why You could see an L2 that's like, no, we're super Ethereum in line. Like we, we don't want to capture profit. We want to be a public good. So anything like there's no surplus we're going to capture and we're going to create a fee algorithm that is designed to always generate zero dollars of profit and only charge the users what it costs to post back to l1 and in that sense it's like all right well, then there's no value accrual here and there are some pretty ethereum aligned l2s that that might be their end state of what they're at least thinking about building so it actually wouldn't change like the the current you know, profitability or, or model you could build for an L2's fundamental value accrual doesn't change with shared sequencers because the way it's built today is there's congestion fees, which are, at least for Arbitrum, Arbitrum's the only one that this is true for, but it's driven to DAO controlled or, you know, DAO treasury, um, DAO controlled address. And you have uh, another fee that goes to the sequencer that pays them back for their, for their cost. Um, so this doesn't change, but what gets interesting is like, where does the MEV go? How do you make sure the sequencer returns the MEV back to the treasury if that's the goal? Which I would imagine it is, at least for Arbitrum. Um, so yeah, that is an that is an interesting point. And then like Dan said, like last time I checked out Ava, which is in you know a, a rollup built with the OP stack, the Urban Finance team built it. They actually were doing exactly what you said. So there's there's no fees for transacting, and they were just pocketing the fees for you know trading. Um, so the sequencer was constantly taking a loss but it was made up for in trading fees. And uh, you could even see a world in the future where 
you know, you had subsidized trading. Like if you make sure that, you know, if you do some sort of silo resistance and make sure that those transacting are actually real and you've created this token that has a lot of value, you could even subsidize getting users onto your platform. I think this is actually, you know, it sounds kind of crazy, but I would not be surprised to see this. It's not my base case, but I wouldn't be surprised at all to see this because, you know, we will probably have, you know, 20 L2s at least by the end of this year. Actually, we already have 20 L2s. We could have 100 L2s by the end of this year and we could have 100 L2s with tokens. So it's like, how are they going to get builders? How are they going to get users? We're going to see this knife fight between L2, BD, grants programs and DAOs where they just like are doing anything to incentivize developers to get there and, and users as well. So I think that that's a really cool future to think about. Yeah, on, on the topic of open-ended questions and just as Matt was pointing out like we haven't really defined MEV property at least from a roll-up perspective like what happens if there's a sequence of transactions that the shared sequencers that the shared sequencer views as optimal for the shared sequencer right but if it sends that sequence of transactions to for example one of the individual roll-ups that sequence of transactions is not optimal for the roll-up and it could be reordered some other way to make it the most optimal for the roll-up. Whatever your definition of optimal is, whether that's like maximize MAV, maximize value accrual, maximize utility for users or something. And yeah, there's just like a lot of open-ended questions that I don't think a lot of people have a good clue to yet. Um, and we'll definitely get answered along the way as Espresso or other like shared sequencer projects continue to work on it. Yeah, you always have the potential model where, you know, in order to participate in the sequencer network, you have to put up a stake and then you build slashing. But I've always had the the idea that we're just, I don't know, I, I think we can do better. Um, I don't think this sounds to me like an optimal way of ordering transactions on an L2. But I also don't have a great solution. So, you know, I can't really be a, a huge critic. I think that's largely because the L2s are like it, they're a bit siloed, right? Like even the OP stack, you don't have interoperability. And that's sort of like this unsolved problem that shared sequencers are maybe a step in the direction of like, obviously you don't get the same bridging guarantees by any stretch of the margin, but you do get some cross-domain benefits that gives them a little bit more of a connected ecosystem, right? And so we're even starting to see, like I think maybe not, in the next three months before the year end, but 2024 is going to be interesting. Like do these ZK ecosystems with richer bridging guarantees actually start to kind of hit some sort of a critical mass and, and gain traction at all. And uh, just actually today on Monday, the 18th, we saw the announcement that Canto is actually going to move from a Cosmos based app chain to uh, an Ethereum L2 on the Polygon CDK. So that is like their, their ZK stack type type solution. Um, it's going to be interesting. Like, I'm just excited to see this uh, real time richer bridging, if you will, in 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 production. So I don't have I don't know what the ETA is on them actually getting that built and into production, but it gets pretty interesting on that point. That's really kind of the universe that I'm looking towards is is where we get these constellations of of zk ecosystems that actually have better interoperability guarantees. Am I allowed to change topics here? Fire away. All right, I'm going to make a point. Um, I think another recurring theme about the conferences, or the, about permissionness, or just in general over the past few weeks has been about data. I think we've gotten to the point where we've all agreed, you know, like blockchains are these open permissionless ledger. You can see all of the, or like technically, you could view all of the data that you want about every single transaction, about the state, 
in any moment of time or at any blocking time of the blocking, but like none of that is readable, you know? Like, uh, normal users not able to read editor scan. Uh, most people don't have like SQL knowledge in order to form a query on chain. And I think both from like a usability perspective, a lot has been focused on like wallets, account abstraction, the user experience. But I think it's also coming to a point where a similar notion is happening for research and data, right? So obviously I'm going to self-show a little bit here that BlockWorks just released their analytics product last Wednesday. You get a trusted, verified source of transparency and data for all of the L1 and L2s and dabs, and we'll be having that by the end of Q4. There's a fantastic mix of very TradFi native metrics such as cash flows, but you also get very crypto native metrics such as EVE supply flows, staking rates, um, user activity, what are the top gas gasoline contracts. And I think sort of that's one thing about crypto, right? You have these like open permissionless platforms you could, that you can build anything on, but also at the same time, there's sort of like a brand name alignment that people have to eventually work towards, right? And that's not just like for our research product, right? Sure, like we have a fantastic research team and we use sort of like data that anyone can technically access, but there's also sort of like a verified component to it. And it's a similar thing for whether like you're a roll up or a protocol building on sort of like a modular stack, right? Eventually you would want to sort of lean towards a verified company or sort of a company with a better brand name. And I think that sort of brand building component, even if like everything is kind of the same in the future, like say we get the same like roll up stack frameworks, is something that's gonna increasingly come to the front of mind over the next one, two, three years. That was beautiful, Ren. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> transparency is my favorite quality of blockchains, to be completely honest. It's the fact that we can see what's going on. Um, but to your point, it's it's not always easy to abstract that the complexity is away and just like give me give me the data in a line chart sometimes um and so that's what this product does is we're building out the interpretation layer uh, making it easy to access health and profitability metrics for our covered asset list so we started with the, the approach of launching the infrastructure layer first so we're supporting all of our l1s and l2s so you know everything from bitcoin ethereum solana arbitrum base optimism and then we're going to build out support for the dap layer so i think first on the docket uh, I don't want to speak too soon, but it's looking like it's going to be Uniswap and Lido, and then we're going to kind of build out going down there. So again, as Ren mentioned, we really want to take the approach of kind of threading the needle between what traditional finance is and has built out and understanding that, you know, they've done a lot of phenomenal work in how to value things and what cash flows are and, and why that's relevant. Um, but there's also, we're building it greatly in, in, in a new paradigm and there's things that don't exist before the, the notion of just like spinning up a digital economy has never existed before. And we're going to need some of our own metrics. And so that's kind of the direction we're thinking. Um, yeah. And again, just trying to, to thread the needle between TradFi and crypto native. So a lot of great stuff on there. I think we'll probably do a live demo on this YouTube channel at some point in the near future, uh, but definitely go to the website, check it out, I'll put the link in the description, but it's uh, app.blockworksresearch.com slash data. Yeah, I remember like a month before we launched this. So about this time last month, Dan, you dropped in, uh, you know, the product and you're like, hey, try and like break this, try and figure out what information's wrong. So I have every single 
you know, data provider and crypto pulled up. So naturally there's discrepancies between our data and everyone else's data, like pretty much across every metric. And I'm like, Dan, you got to check this. Westy, you got to check this. And like, you guys were like, I'm 100% sure that we are correct here. And just hearing your guys' confidence there was like pretty sweet just to know that like we have all the right information. But yeah, definitely check that out. But some other takeaways I had from uh, Permissionless, I feel like Cosmos has a ton of stuff going for it. I feel like we've talked about it a lot, but got to know Ethan Buckman and Sam Hart a bit because I got to moderate a panel with them and now I can officially uh, call them my friends, which is pretty cool. Um, but <laughs> nonetheless, very good guys, big brains, like seriously, just like hyped up about the vision. And I asked them about, you know, MetaMask Snaps, which was also announced a permissionless, which basically lets people, honestly, it kind of turns MetaMask into more of like a modular product because now like different teams can build different plugins for people to integrate. And now, you know, you can use Cosmos chains with, with MetaMask, which in my opinion is huge for the Cosmos ecosystem because having to download another wallet, you know, going centralized exchange to um, osmosis and then to like wherever else you want to go or yeah the just the flow has been terrible then you got the native usdc so yeah i think the app specific chain thesis is definitely gaining steam especially with dydxv4 mainnet here pretty soon i also hosted a panel on gaming uh that was with argus uh brevin howard and animoca so kind of a wide array of, of speakers on that one but I feel like everyone just really wants gaming to be where where you want it to be like you know it's got so much potential in crypto but i think everyone also like isn't really sure when that when that moment is actually going to come and it was funny guilty as charged absolutely (laughs) guilty yeah no it was funny that talking to scott from argus because he's like an an on-chain maxi he's like yeah everything should be on chain you know he's the creator of the dark forest and then you had the the investors going whoa like i think we got to take some of this stuff off chain because like these games just suck (laughs) so two completely different perspectives um, and then I would also say just bullish Solana builders. I, I met the Drift team. They just launched V2. Xano uh, uh, and Lucas, two really good guys over at Gito. They're at like 2 million liquid Gito Soul um, stake. So I don't know, bullish on like a lot of different ecosystems. And I feel like I went into this conference feeling so confident in like my ideals and like predictions, I, I guess, over the next five years. And I'm really leaving it more confused than I entered it. I got a question for you on the gaming thing. So on-chain versus off-chain, what is, like, what's your personal take on how much of the game needs to be on-chain? I'm in the investor camp. I think that like the NFTs, the assets themselves should be you know, on-chain. And then I think that we should have a lot of stuff off-chain. Like, I, w- I think it'd be pretty cool if even you had like a game on the app store and let's say there's tokens involved in the on-chain economy like the hardcore users can go use the the on-chain game but then the casual players can you know spend their 99 cents to buy this thing and then that buy pressure ultimately flows on chain and the the user doesn't actually even know it know it and i think like you get around a lot of the different nft token gateways uh, of the app stores of the world so i don't know this is this is a space too where i'm really excited about but i have no idea what the end game looks like i just want i think i'm in the investor camp to your point as well sam but i, I kind of i also agree with matt like i haven't spent enough i haven't spent enough time to like really know if that's the best answer. It's just like my in my head, I have the concept of just give me RuneScape with the economy of the game on chain. That is all I want. That would give you a very interesting dynamic of like, you know, you try to make, and you could even do this in like a permissioned blockchain sense. And I think it would still be interesting, right? Because so EVE Online, Ren, you pointed this out to me and like they have this vibrant economy, but they don't actually have any of the in-game assets directly swappable for like dollars, which I find very interesting. And they have this 
super cool proxy where the like uh, the the dollars in the game. I think they're called ISK. ISK is redeemable for a one like a the subscription to play the game like on a monthly basis, and so they can change the value of the subscription. Sort of like think of it as like a Fed funds lever, right? Like you can based on how cheap or expensive this subscription is, it's like changes the inflow of capital into the economy, which is so interesting. And like, you could find all of these crazy, crazy ways to um, maybe, I don't want to use the word manipulate, but like change or, or change the dynamics of an in-game economy. Um, and I just think that'd be incredibly fun to play and, and experiment with in real time. And like, I love kind of like the MMO, MMORPG style games as well. So I just think that'd be fun. Um, but then you got to think about who's going to build this. Like, are you really going to bet on a crypto native firm that like loves crypto and has maybe built like a DEX or something within crypto? And so it'd be perfect to go build the in-game economy for this. Or are you going to build like bet on the team that has spent 20 years building out this exact game, but without the crypto element? And like, I feel really just feel like it's easier to go kind of backwards and pick up the crypto element than be crypto native and pick up the how to build a fun and exciting game element. Um, so it's like, not only does that make sense for the fun side of things, but like actually built, like creating an, an, like a virtual economy, that is not an easy task. And like Eve online has actual economists on their team. So I don't know. I, a 16 Z funded this, that the company that built Eve online to kind of experiment with blockchains. Uh, so definitely going to be paying attention to what they're doing. Two other takeaways from that gaming panel too was it was a side panel. So like I thought it was going to be pretty empty to be quite frank and it was packed. So like people are interested in gaming. There's no doubt about it. And yeah, I feel very strongly about that. And then the other one was I was like, so like I feel like in 2020, everyone was like, oh yeah, imagine you can take your Call of Duty gun over to Fortnite. And like, yeah, like that was like the envision of like Web3 gaming, like super composable. And I asked them if they're bullish composability and interoperability and they're like, Honestly, kind of bearish composability, but pretty bullish interoperability, like the ability to just cash out of one economy, very seamlessly go to another game and play in that economy. And that actually made a ton of sense to me. That one hit home for me. I'll add that as an avid gamer, or I used to be an avid gamer, I'm not sure I have the time for that these days, uh, but as an avid gamer, I'm definitely excited about on-chain games. But one area that I'm also super excited about is gamified things right whether that's gamified learning gamified work or gamified i don't know i feel like i said learning already um but just like putting gamified stuff on a blockchain where you know you have like token incentives and you directly get streamed like i don't know, like us dollars for working that that feels like a very natural evolution of taking sort of like the best of big tech or like startup type apps and sort of like the retention that they have and putting it on blockchain you know uh especially as the economy moves into a slightly more like freelance model it seems like you're seeing more people do like more things on the side right whether that's like writing drawing doing a cartoon ghost writing um and especially as sort of emerging economies come online and they have like uh, an entire plethora of like talents that graduated from good universities are super smart very talented it's just that they don't have any job opportunities available domestically it seems like crypto at least from like a financial payment rails perspective has the opportunity to sort of equalize that and make those opportunities more accessible or for example 
say you're like an AI company, your prompts suck today, you want to improve the results of your responses, right? Um, you don't want to have to go build out like your own platform. You don't have to go find your own customer base. So maybe someone creates like a decentralized human resource marketplace where anyone can come on, help train your models. You can stream them USDC for every like prompt that they did well. And you can add like some token incentives or like whatever and, and gamify it. That seems like a very natural use case of crypto. And I feel like I want to see a lot more of that happening too. Yeah, I'm definitely for gamified experiences as well, Ren. I, I couldn't agree more there. But I did want to ask one last question before we wrap up because there was a really good panel uh, with uh, Monad and uh, Eclipse blanking on the third party on this one, to be completely honest. But I feel like just the SVM has kind of been a big talking point. Anatoly had that one talk on stage where it got really heated with uh, some of the other panelists and, and why the single shard thesis is the right way to scale blockchain. So I'm curious... Um, how do you guys feel about the SVM on, on Ethereum as a roll-up with Eclipse? I believe that uh, that news should be coming out soon this week. Yeah, I'm super excited about that it, like that creation, right? And so what I actually talked to, I had a panel on the modular stack with John Adler, uh, C-Node, and Neil from Eclipse as well. He was there, and I asked him, I was like, okay, look, like, plugging an SVM-based roll-up into Ethereum, which is EVM-based, got to be some complexities there like i don't know i can't tell you why i'm from a developer level but in my head that's just like like i don't know taking two ends of an electrical cord and trying to plug them in together when like that just doesn't work and uh he was like no that's it's act it's not and i was sitting next to john adler on stage when i asked this question and john was like yeah actually you know i could think of a few reasons why it would actually be easier and I was like, all right, now I'm very confident that you're not lying to me. And <laughs> this is actually work is true. So, so getting the localized fee markets and the parallelization of the SVM and plugging that into Ethereum's liquidity hub as a settlement layer, what else do you want? I mean, that's kind of like the best of all worlds that we have right now. And then, like you can even expand that out into the future and say, all right, use ETH as a settlement. So put my bridge contract there. Give me the liquidity based that it, it's, that it currently has. And I can tap into some of the liquidity, uh, maybe even in those L2 ecosystems. And then give me the cheap DA from Celestia. And then I'm going to use the SVM. That kind of seems like this dream world of of what we have as from an infrastructure level today so very excited about what eclipse is doing it seems like they've kind of bailed on the roll-up as a service thing neil's been like very open about they just don't see the economics behind that and like i don't know i haven't really dove too too deep on that but like in my world i'm relatively bearish on the idea of like a hundred rolls a thousand rolls a million rolls like that's like a roll per user at this point. Like I think a couple of roll-ups is probably the most logical starting point for me. And like I, that's where I'm at right now. So I love to see the SVM. All right. So I'm pushing back, pushing back on all, all comments here. Um, yes, you know, having localized fee markets on an L2 is cool, but in my opinion, it's somewhat worthless because you can have application specific roll-ups. You're not really fighting congestion on your roll-up anyways. If you launch something really cool on Arbitrum, go spin it up into an L3. If you launch something really cool on Optimism, go spin up your own L2 on the OP stacks if they get if it gets enough use that it's really like, you know, competing for for block space. And as far as, you know, so like that's why I think like localized fee markets on L2 is like cool, but you know, kind of kind of worthless. Um, and then as far as like the SVM, you know, I guess okay, cool, we're going to get Rust developers over here, but like as we've seen with Arbitrum and Arbitrum Stylus, 
they're going to support a full Wasm compiler in the future if the DAO uh, approves of it. Approves it. So I think that's actually way cooler. Like a Wasm compiler, you can do you can do Rust, C, C plus plus. So not just Rust. So I think and I think zk Sync is doing something very similar with their own custom compiler. They actually don't even use the EVM. They're going to have their own virtual machine. Um, that uh, likewise they'll be able to compile multiple different languages down into I think eventually probably into EVM bytecode or Ethereum bytecode. So realistically, like you know, not a ton of value in this. Uh, yeah, we're going to onboard all the Rust developers, which I already kind of, you know, have a problem with at the end of the day. Like, if you're an amazing Rust developer, you can probably go learn Solidity. Uh, there's other benefits. Like, you know, for instance, with the Wasm compiler, you're able to come and put in custom precompiles. So, like, easy to come port some, like, super complex elliptic curve into your application that, you know, rewriting in Solidity would just be close to impossible because it'd be too expensive. So, like, that's fucking awesome. But everything else is, like... Yeah, I don't know. I just I just don't see it as anything but cool. I do think it's cool. I just don't see it as like super valuable for for the rollups. And then also if you're using Celestia as your data availability layer, like you know, you're not scaling Ethereum. You're 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 not you're not really gaining Ethereum security. So I don't okay, know. Okay, okay, okay. I agree. But I think my my biggest pushback would be on point one, right? Because I'm still sitting in the camp where atomic composability is this thing that like we haven't really figured out the true value of today. And so I'm not ready to give it up, honestly. Um, I want apps to be fully composable with each other, especially in a financial sense. And again, like I'm not going to sit here and tell you I have the, the silver bullet as to why, but that really feels like a major unlock of blockchains that settling for async composability uh, even if it's just like one block delayed, it just doesn't seem like the best move. Like I really feel like there's a huge unlock there. We just haven't figured it out yet. So I'm not ready to to settle to say, all right, just move them to its own app chain L3. But I hear you there. And I do think localized fee markets are still interesting because, you know, at times of peak congestion, you know, we've seen uh, like Arbitrum fees still get like, you know, material increase materially. Localized fee markets are elite. There's no way around it. But do you really still have synchronous composability with localized fee markets? Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but if two things touch the same state, I don't think they can be composable. Like, I don't think you you can't be composable in the traditional sense and be in separate fee markets. Um, and I, I might be wrong here. I'm not like you know the most the most well read on Solana, but I think that if you're like you know touching DeFi, which you know, I think most people want to be able to touch the same state. So if you're touching Aave and Uniswap, so you know, you're being composable between the two, you probably can't have these transactions be in, in separate fee markets. I, that, I don't want to pretend like I know the specifics here either, because it's I my thought is like basically each, it wouldn't necessarily be the token contracts that uh, are like the piece of state being altered, and it's more so the liquidity pools themselves, right? So like each pool would be a different piece of state. But we definitely need to get a like a parallelization genius gigabrain on here and be like, I want to know on a like protocol level, like let's pretend Uniswap was on the SVM. Like what does that mean for Uniswap? That would be such a fun conversation. That's a great idea for a podcast, honestly. We should definitely do that. Honestly though, my biggest takeaway here is that Solana is the winner. Like, let's say Eclipse launches and one single shard. <laughs> like, they're the winner here, though, out of this situation. Because let's say Eclipse launches a ton of liquidity, migrates up there, and then you get a bunch of builders who are like, oh, now I want to learn SVM coding. Like, and then, you know, you're going to have deployments both, both on this rollup and on Solana, because why not? You might as well deploy both places. And then you'd be able to see the benefits of having a layer one versus a rollup as an SVM. So, I don't know. I, I put the real winner as Solana for sure, and I know Anatoly says that as well. I'll say that 
Block space is abundant, but liquidity and network effects aren't. And I think that's become very, very evident in the past few months, um, especially as rollup after rollup launches, but also as app chain after app chain tells the press that, you know, they're Ethereum aligned, they're totally not like a Cosmos project. Um, I, I do think Solana has been winning in the grand scheme of things in the past a few months, whether that's sort of like the reward integrations it has, or for example, like Drip is doing really well. They have like a decent amount of like DeFi projects launching on Solana these days, especially like Zeta, Drift. It all seems like they're doing very interesting things. There, I think there's one project, um, I can't remember the name, but they launched like Zero Day Futures. I hope it's a Solana project, but like that was really cute, uh, really cool. But also a- another point that I keep on coming back to is like a lot of these metrics don't matter today, right? Like even your favorite like blockchain protocol or like your favorite network probably has like what, 5,000 daily active users. And all it takes is one consumer app to come online to blow every single user metric out of the water. Like I wouldn't be very surprised if Nier and that Cosmos app has more daily active users than every single blockchain combined together in existence just because it's sort of like a retail shopping app it's found i think product market fit and it's generated near like i don't know like what 2.6 million like transactions for today I, I haven't verified that data myself but i would guess it blows everything out of the water right now and it's like you know like you can discuss all you want like whatever is better tech but then like near which i'm pretty sure everyone had written off suddenly comes along with like one consumer app and it just like shits on all of your metrics so i think cute was the right word at the end of the day a lot of the applications we have today are cute and they're not you know we're so we're so early stage like one thing can can come and just blow up all these cute applications and prove like you know this infrastructure really we built the infrastructure now we need an app that uh gains traction among users i think we are at a point that was another another topic of conversation i'm sorry i know that you guys are probably trying to wrap up but account abstraction and other ways to abstract away tough user user experiences and make uh you know the general public make it easier for the general public to use blockchains was another thing that kept coming up and i think like we are seeing such significant such significant evolutions there and you know it's really cool that i think in the next in the next bull market like it might be as simple as you know set up a wallet you never see a private key use your face id to sign off on a transaction and like you never even know you're using a blockchain like you have account abstraction and someone's covering your gas costs because it's three cents on base anyways or wherever you're transacting and uh that was just like one last thing i want to mention definitely bullish on abstracting away the fact that you're using a blockchain matt you sent me that goldfinch thing and credit to you that you flagged this thing like four months ago and i was like ah, i'm not looking at that and then you pulled it up at permissionless and you were like dude just click the link and do it and this goldfinch app like you click like three links so you scan your face and boom like you just signed a transaction you never knew you had a private key you never knew that your address was some long hex- hexadecimal address you don't even know what a blockchain needs like you don't need need to know what a blockchain is or know you're using it it was fucking cool i was like all right this that was actually felt like a mass adoption moment i was like i can tell my mom to use this and it would work like that's cool so uh, i definitely agree abstracting away blockchains in beyond the sense of just like traditional account abstraction is really cool. Yeah, I had a Web3 wallet worth panel. And like that was obviously a very common topic of conversation was account abstraction. But I did find it interesting when I asked them, so what's the long-term business model here for, for wallets? 
not a single one of them could say like how we're going to monetize the user base. I think like everyone just thinks this is a winner takes all market. Like we got to get in there, out compete MetaMask, make a better wallet, get the users, and then we'll figure it out later, which I, I just find hilarious. <laughs> Can't say sell your order flow on stage. Sell your order flow and then didn't MetaMask print like a billion dollars from their swap product over the last year or something? Like at least a couple hundred million, which is just absurd. Plus like also, like I didn't say this, but they're going to launch a token for sure, right? Like I think we can all assume they're going to launch a token. Yeah, I actually, I led into the question that way. I was like, so I doubt users will get railed on 1% fees forever, like in app swap. So like, what's what's the next step here? And, and yeah, I think you guys are right. Payment for order flow. Anyways, that's probably a good spot to call it. Um, definitely let us know in the comments how you like the, uh, the new structure with the analyst segment and then the interview. We feel like there's two cohorts of listening here. So uh, yeah, just drop it in the comments. But guys, thanks for coming on the pod and uh, we'll see you here next week. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. And Matt Cutler episode next week should be a good one.